What I did before I came here, what I did is I, I posted on Twitter, I posted on Facebook, I'm going to come speak to a bunch of students at, U, at UCSB, what should I talk about? And it was really kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm actually being involved in all this internet stuff for a long time. I, I overly use it, uh, particularly for an old, old guy, older guy, um, and try to get a lot of ideas. And I, I ended up with a lot of really interesting thoughts from people, none of which I'm really going to use, but I think some of them are kind of interesting uh, of comments of, of what people said. Uh, one that was particularly interesting, which I have to find here, is from Zach. And so you, when you post this stuff in general ways, which says, I'm going to just do this talk, which I talk about, Zach says, cities are our future. The only way we're going to be able to pull billions of light, people out of poverty, and the only possible way that 9 billion people will be able to, to live sustainability on the planet. Uh, Kibera, which is where I've done some work, which I'm going to show you some stuff later on, uh, might be a slum, but it's also a place where real innovation is occurring and where we are beginning to see semblance of a path out of poverty emerging for some people. And I, I think what was interesting when, when I post this stuff and what I, what I've, I'm sort of a random kind of person where I'll post, I'll put stuff in my Facebook status, I'll put stuff in Twitter, I'll post stuff, uh, sometimes a small world, I put stuff on Quora, to try to get some feedback from people that I normally never would, not talk to on a regular, a uh, more frequent basis. So it's kind of interesting. So I got some really good feedback there, and then I also uh, some other interesting things when I was driving down. Um, so I drove down from Palo Alto. The really fascinating thing to me was after I got out of the Bay Area, most radio stations and stuff sort of go fade away. So I had my iPhone, uh, I was driving in the car, I put Pandora on. So I was able to stream Pandora all the way from just maybe south of San Jose, all the way to Santa Barbara. Which is kind of interesting if you think about five to six years ago, you couldn't do that. The idea that you could have a persistent internet connection, streaming music, which is pretty intense, down to a mobile device of a car moving is kind of interesting. And, and I think from a perspective of the opportunities it's going to create in the world for you guys is really kind of fascinating. And the other thing, when I stopped, I was, I was, I was, I was going through my Twitter stuff, and there was a, a tweet where someone said something like 65% of the people in the world now have cell phones. And so you look at the world that you're in and the world you guys are going to be moving into as you move out of school. There's all kinds of new stuff going on, which is creating all kinds of new opportunities, which I think is really exciting. And it's much different when I grew up. You know? And so what I just thought I'd do is talk to you a little bit about what I've done and some points in my time in the life that are kind of interesting. The main point that I think I want to make, then I'll just make up front and I'll try to talk about it later on, is that one of the challenges that school has, or when you get out of school and you start working, is sometimes education and experience get in your way of taking advantage of the right opportunity. And what do I mean by that is like, when I first started working at Excite, 
I'd interview people, and this is 1995, the internet was first starting to get going, you guys were probably in elementary school, um, and what was interesting was that people would come to me and they'd say, I go, we're, we need to hire someone for this job, how would you do it? And they'd go, I've got 10 years of experience in this, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I would talk to them and I'd go, you know, I have, I've got like 15 years of experience and I'm clueless, how come you know so much more than I do? And I think a lot of what people do is they take their experience and they make it a formula and say, I've seen this before, I've done this before. And as a result, they try to recreate that. And oftentimes, in the, in the, I think the world you're going to be in, you can't do that. You've got to look at every opportunity in a very unique way. I think education sometimes does that too. It says you take these classes, you start here, you end up there. Particularly, I think MBA students who do a lot of casework, they look at, here's an example of the way someone did it right or someone did it wrong. And I think in the end, what it's all about is how do you develop kind of innovative thinking to try to find ways when opportunities come up that you can see them. That, the, that if you have a lot of experience and you're sort of locked into just what your experience tells you, you're going to be in a situation where there's going to be an opportunity come up, but it doesn't map your experience, you won't do it. So I think the key thing is how do you keep yourself open, aware, and seize opportunities as they come up. So that's a key thing. So I graduated from UCSB with a bachelor's degree in political science in 1976, moved to Berkeley, and my whole idea is I was part of the Capitol, I don't know what it's called now, it used to be called the Capitol Hill program, when you go back to Washington, D.C. and work for in the congressional office. I did that when I was here. And when I, I was like full of life, excited about doing some political stuff, so I had all these ideas. My girlfriend was going to UC Berkeley, so I went up to Berkeley and thought I'd do, do political stuff. But you know, I didn't have a job, so I had to figure out what to do. So this is like October, September, October of, of uh, 1976. I effectively was, went to the UC Berkeley Job Placement Center. And I started looking at uh, doing part-time temporary jobs to fill the gap so I can make some money to, to make something happen. So I can, get, so I can uh, sort of live, I guess. And what I did during college, the way, way, way I made my way through college is I was a machinist. I worked in a machine shop. One summer I was a drill press operator. Next summer I was a sheet metal worker. Next summer I was a lathe operator. And the last year I, was a, uh, tool, I worked for the tool and die guy as an apprentice. So I developed these kind of skills around that stuff. I wasn't, I mean, it was only did in summer and breaks. So I wasn't really proficient at it, but I was good enough. So what happened is one day I popped in the UC Berkeley Job Placement Center and there's this posting. It says, we're a computer company, we built these parts, we changed the design of the parts, we have these, these cases and we have these parts, they don't fit together now, we need someone who knows how to make this happen, and we get, need to get all this stuff done in like two and a half months because we have to ship all these products. So I look at this thing and I kind of go, I think I could probably do that, I'll go check it out. It was this little computer company, it was a startup, uh, it was based in uh, Berkeley, or in Emeryville, I think. And I went down, looked at it, uh, the CEO was desperate, he would hire anyone, he gave me the job, and uh, we, I fixed all those parts in like six to eight weeks. And they made their quarter, they shipped all these products out, and it was good. The thing that was interesting about that was every day the CEO would come out and hassle me. I mean, I thought he was hassling me. He wasn't hassling me. He just wanted to make sure this was getting done. And the project started slow because there was, the, they changed the design in such a big way that it was going to take a lot of different works. I had to create these jigs. I had to do different things. It took me three to four days to figure it out. But once I figured it out, we just cranked through the parts. And when all that was done, he looked at me and said, you know, what are you doing? What do you do next? And I go, well, I got this interview at this thing. I'm looking at this. I got this interview over there. I'm looking at that. And he goes, why don't you stay with us and you can be as flexible as you want until you effectively find a job. And I sat back and said, okay. So I, I basically stayed there. Eventually, they talked me to join their sales department. 
And that's how I got into the computer industry. Total by accident. When I first did it, when I first talked to this guy, I had no desire to work for this company. I had no desire to work in sales. I thought sales was a low-life job. Like, why would I want to do that? I didn't trust most salespeople, right? So, so I did it. And so it was really a fascinating thing. So I started that in 1996, 1976. And that was around the time Apple started. This was a company that was sort of in, that, in the space around Apple doing the Apple I and the Apple II. And so that's how I fell into it. So what did I learn from that experience, right? What I, what I really, the, big, the really big lesson, there's one really huge lesson I learned during that thing, is don't assume that what really happens in a lot of instances, that in imperfect knowledge, people will go, I think I know what they're doing. This is what they want to do. And effectively, companies make very faulty decisions when they make assumptions. And assumptions, and assuming something is kind of godlike, right? It's, you're assuming that you know what someone is thinking. That's why you're assuming you know. The trick, the better thing is just to ask. And so there was many times in this company when th decisions were making fast, moving faster, the company had problems. Eventually, this company went chapter 13, went out of business. But, but what they did was they made all these assumptions about stuff. And what I would do is I'd hear them at these meetings, and I'd see them make assumptions. I'd go call people and say, is this what happened? And they'd say, no. And I'd go back in the meetings, and I'd say, I just called the guy. That's not what happened. Here's what's happening. Why, why would you think this thing happened? And so the trick is, is it, that, that was a really important thing for me to learn, because by not assuming, I actually tried to find a way to find a better fact base to make a decision that helped me later on. And so it's really important. So I think that's one of the really key lessons I learned during that short period of time. And think of how many, things you're, how many times you're involved in something. It could be a relationship. It could be a work thing. It could be something in school that someone assumes they know what the answer, when oftentimes you just need to ask or find out. And oftentimes, when you work in the computer industry, you don't know. Right? You're dealing with imperfect knowledge. You're dealing with imperfect data. You're dealing with perfect stuff. You're trying to make trending kind of decisions to effectively make something happen. And I think that is, you just identify that. You identify where you don't have the data. And where you don't have the data, can you fill the gap of finding that data? Or you just make an imperfect decision. And then hopefully that decision is 70 80% right, and you course correct it over time. Which is another really important thing to learn in a startup is that directionally most of your decisions are going to be faulty, but can you make them 75% right and fix, fast fix them? Or like an, a larger company, which will take you know, months and months and months to make a decision 90% correct because they don't want to fail at that decision or they don't want to look stupid. So from there what I did was, about four years later, I did that company. I did, another, that, and I did another hardware company after that, too. My first two companies I worked at were hardware companies. The second one was going through a course correction period, and uh, we downsized the company. We laid off about 40% of the staff. And I, I looked at what happened. I looked at the decisions that the management team had made. I was part of the management team. There's other parts of the management team made. And I wasn't happy with the decisions. So I, I woke up one morning and I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't stay at this company. I think the company's going to fail based on these decisions management made. And so I decided to quit. And so I quit. And I go, a week later, I said, well, what am I going to do now? I redeemed a bunch of frequent flyer bonus miles. And I went away. And I was, was going to go for a month. And three and a half months later, I came back. I went to New Zealand, Australia, and Fiji for three months. It was kind of a, it's almost like living in Santa Barbara. Um, it was a great trip. Uh, I traveled by myself. I was about 31 or 32 years old. Uh, so I was a single. Uh, effectively, I just decided to, I needed to go clean my, clean my brain out and so forth. There's a really weird thing when you decide to do something like this and that you kind of go, oh my God, I'm 31, 32. It's like I got to get a job again. I got to figure out what's going on. I have all these angst and anxieties, some of them which may be as seniors. 
you might be having now, thinking like you're moving into this workforce, it's kind of a challenging time. Um, but, you know, so I went off after I, was, after I was in New Zealand for, I was supposed to be in New Zealand for a week. I, I don't know what was going through my brain when I scheduled this trip. Uh, New Zealand for a week, Australia for two weeks, and then Fiji for a week. Like as if you could actually see those countries in those periods of time. So I ended up spending two weeks in New Zealand, two and a half months in Australia, and two weeks in Fiji, and then I came home. But what did I learn? I learned a lot about myself in that trip. Uh, and mo- one of the most important things I learned was how to deal with my own neurotic personality and how to be more confident in myself. And there is one thing that was really important to me on that trip was I was between Adelaide and Melbourne, and there was this little sh- shrimp town. And I had been gone about, I was halfway through the trip, maybe six, five, six weeks. And I, I'm there, and all of a sudden, I decide I'm going home. Like, things weren't going well. Like, why am I doing this traveling by myself? I just need to give it up. I got to move on. And what I effectively did is I, I talked myself into it. I packed my bags. I was going to get in the car in the morning. I was driving back to Melbourne. I checked on flights I can get. I was ready to go. I woke up in the morning, and I said, why? Why go home? What am I going home to? I don't need to go home. I have enough money to last for a year. What am I doing this for? Somehow my brain had a fight with itself over the night, and some part of the brain won and said, you're continuing to go on the trip. But the thing is, what I really realized at that point in time was that I was driving myself a little crazy. I was basically saying that I need to get a job for some reason. I, need, I set these, all these artificial barriers in front of myself that I felt I had to deal with instead of just dealing with the moment in time. And when was I going to have another time that I could effectively take this time off? And, and, and in perspective, I didn't take any summers off when I went to college. I worked every summer. Because I, I, when I left college, it only cost $225 a quarter to go to UC Santa Barbara when I was here. But, uh, <laughs> but when I did graduate, I didn't have any debt. right? Because I, I paid for it all. It was, all, it was debt-free, which was like a wonderful thing to have. Um, but I think to do that, I worked every winter break. I worked every spring break. I worked every summer. You know, so I could have all the money to effectively. I ran out of money, uh, I think, the last month I was here, and I had to hit my parents up for a loan, which I paid back. But, uh, so there was that. But, but the trick is that I felt like, you know, I've never taken much time off. I need to go do this. I need to figure this out. I need to, and so I kept going on this trip. And it was a, in, in, the, in the end, it was an amazing trip for that perspective. I came back from that trip, and then I had to deal with all my anxiety. It goes, oh my God, I've been, I've been gone for like four or five months. Do I, did the industry change a lot? What happened to my friends? Do they think I'm a flake? What's going when I came back, I found that most of my friends said, I am so amazed you could do this. I mean, I wish I could do that. I wish I had the balls to take six months off or five months off and travel. They go, I'm so, you did it. And they go, what can we do to help you now? And so what you do is you find all these things that I thought were I was going to be left behind and, and I wasn't going to be able to get a job and, oh, my God, I'm going to be like working at McDonald's or something. Who knows? All those angst and anxieties went away very quickly when I got home and started realizing. So what I did is I went and traveled for three more months. And I roamed around the United States for three months and I came back. And during that process, halfway through that trip, someone approached me about doing a consulting project for a company. It was a software company. And uh, they, they wanted someone to actually roam around the country and go do site visits of their competitors and give them an assessment of what all their competitors were doing for them. So I did that. It's great. And then I, then not, only, not only did I roam around for three months, I got paid for it, and they paid for all my travel. And I had to go to places like Detroit, exciting places like Detroit, though. But it was, it was a great trip overall. So I did that, and then I wrote this plan up for them. And two months later, they came to me and said, we want you to implement this plan. We want you to effectively do this. So I said, great. 
So what I really found during that period of time is you can take these clumps of time off, you can disappear, and in the end, it can actually be an advantage. I, thought, I really felt it cleared my mind, it exposed myself. Where we got one guy sleeping. We got one guy sleeping, taking a nap. I wish I had a Frisbee. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it was really, it's a, it's a huge benefit. So I highly recommend that when you get these times in your life, where effectively you think, why rush into stuff? Even today I have people, I have friends, who've been very, I have this friend of mine who just made a ton of money at Facebook. And uh, he's, he's now gonna go work at Zanga. He took a month off, I'm going, why? You know, he's got three kids. I don't get why he's doing it, but the thing is, if you can, you, you're gonna find you can take the time off and you can survive and get through it. I should've taken my password off this thing. Um, so what happened after that? Uh, oh, so, so I, that, that effectively, from my career perspective, took me from, from hardware into software, which is like a really important shift, and it, which I really want to do. I really felt how hardware was getting commoditized and so forth. So then you move that to that, to the next phase. I did some enterprise software companies, which computer, I, went, I joined this really small company that I wrote the plan for. That company got bought by Computer Associates, which is now a big enterprise company, and that's how I stayed there. I stayed there for a while. And then what happened is I, I left and I did a startup, and the startup ended up um, being, it was kind of fun and interesting, but we, there was an architectural issue with the product, and, and we, we successfully raised $3 million from Mayfield, a very good venture capital firm, but effectively that product didn't work. And we ended up in the situation where we, we had to make a decision about whether, what to do going forward, so we returned the money, shut the company down. We actually sold the company for a nominal amount for the brand. Uh, and so then I ended up trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And someone I know said, look, I know this venture capitalist you should go talk to. Uh, he's got this company that, needs, that need, really needs some help. Would I go help him? And so I met this guy, Jeff Yang, who uh, uh, was at IVP at the time, now a, a venture capital firm called Redpoint. And Jeff goes, you know, I got this little firm called Architects. These guys are really smart guys. They've got some great stuff. I just so I have some concerns about him. Would I go meet with them? So I go meet with these guys, and this company eventually, it, Architects is the, is the name that Excite was before it became Excite. And so uh, I met these guys, mainly six guys out of Stanford, 23 at the time. Um, there were uh, and about five other programmers or so, and so I started uh, hanging out with these guys. And it was really interesting, uh, that whole period of time. One is that, you know, this is 1995, we didn't know what this thing was gonna become, you know, and, and, and we made some huge strategic errors to the company, and that's probably a, a talk for another session sometime. But the thing that was interesting was that I saw myself as a 42-year-old guy who was having, my wife was seven months pregnant. Uh, I had a three-year-old son. And I was thinking about jumping into an internet company really run by six 23-year-olds. And I thought it was really exciting and captivating. I really thought it was like an old guy, young guy, that I was an old guy who didn't know, what there was, didn't know anything about this industry, but I had certain perspectives on life. And I felt these young guys really knew what they were doing, but thought they wanted to be managers and CEOs and presidents, which is all the stuff I didn't want to do. Like Managing people is really a pain in the ass. If you talk to anyone who manages a lot of people, they're gonna say, if you can, get a great job that pays you a lot of money, where you can actually you know, help people out, but don't have to manage anybody. And so what I ended up doing was, was joining this company. And that was the wild ride. It's probably the most fun I've had, because it was like, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. There's no business model on the internet. It was just starting to take off. Um, the company was the fourth, it was seventh in its category in launching, which typically any company that's down that far in the category fails. 
uh, relatively quickly. We were able to do a lot of things to move the company forward. But that was really an amazing experience. I think the key thing I learned there was you know, the old guy, young guy, teaming up people. You know, I think in that company, early on, what was really quite amazing, we'd all get in a conference room, we could all belch. We could all do whatever in a conference room, leave, and the right stuff happened. The good communications, there was good trust, uh, and everything worked well during that period of the company. So that was really pretty exciting. Um, I thought that, you know, the opportunities were huge. One of the things that I, um, well, a couple other things that were kind of interesting is that this is an example, I think, where the first phase of the internet where there was a head fake in the business model, where advertising was the key, but the banner advertising kind of market that was there was not the right advertising model, particularly around search. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we, I really learned to there is that you can develop a company that's going down a path. Don't assume that the business model you're on is the business model you're going to thrive on. You always got to be paranoid and thinking about how the business model might evolve or change. And the most famous example of that, which I asked earlier, is how many people, how many times do you think advertising was in Google's business plan that they got funded on? Anyone know the answer to that? You were in the meeting. It wasn't mentioned at all. Advertising is not a core thing that Google wanted to be. It was an enterprise company. And so, but now they are the largest advertising company. And how did they do it? Basically, Yahoo put Google search results, which Google licensed to Yahoo, and Yahoo paid Google money. They put Overture ads on it, put it together. Some Google engineers said, holy, this is like an amazing, that together on a single platform is a huge opportunity. And what Overture took years to do, Google did in nine, 10, 12 months. And you know, basically, Google became the largest advertiser and, and switched the role of, instead of selling search results, they basically shipped money off to AOL, shipped money off to Yahoo, shipped money off to other people, because that was a huge revenue driver for them. So the idea is, is that and with the Excite stuff, a lot of it was, not only was it fun, fast, we went from 11 people to whatever it was. We went from 600, I think, to, I think it was 300, 400. We did a revenue from zero to 250 million by the time we sold it. Uh, and so it was four years, four and a half years. Uh, all these companies went public. We went public with 28 people. We didn't have a VP of engineering. We hired a CFO like days before we went public. You can't do any of that anymore, but it was like a wild ride. And it was, it was very exciting. That led me to my, what did I do after that, which, is, which has been the most fun I've been having recently. Um, so what happened to me was uh, the company got really big. We merged into this company at home. It became Excited Home. I, I realized that's not the environment I thrive in. Um, so I decided I'd help them transition the company through uh, the purchase price and six months later, so I transitioned out. And what really drove that decision was a personal decision that I was, I was at home on a Saturday in December with my uh, daughter. And so my, my son, uh, by the time I started working at Excite, Excite was almost a seven by 24 job. Um, and my sons are like boys, they're a little different. My son, I'd go out and throw a baseball in the backyard, we'd talk about stuff, life would be good. This guy knows my kids here, he can tell you all about it. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, is, was really a big fantasy world player. Like, she had set up these fantasy worlds in the backyard. I mean, one time I walked out in the backyard, she was having a tea party, I walked through a tea party, I didn't know she was having a tea party, she was having a tea party, she looks at me, she goes, Dad, you walked through my tea party, can you walk around next time? And, but that's the kind of girl she was, right? So she was four at the time, she looks at me and says, Dad, I asked her, go, Brooke, let's go do this. She goes, Dad, until you're prepared to spend more time with me, I prefer to go do this with Mom. And so I realized that I had a problem, that if I didn't connect with my daughter by the time she was 14, I was toast. 
I was probably toast anyways. I could be toast anyways. But I was going to be really toast, right? So I took a giant step back, basically said I want to hang out with my kids. And I became, I transitioned my, my personal life business model to more of a, I want to spend 30 to 40% of the time with my kids. I want to work with entrepreneurs. I wanted to work with some venture capitalists. I wanted to get on some boards of companies. I wanted to figure it out. And so I spent the last 10 years kind of creating a business model that I think works for me, which is what I do now, which some, some angel investing, um, uh, some advising of venture capitalists, and so forth. And it's been a really remarkable, a remarkable ride, and I'm really excited about it. The, the thing that's, that's interesting to me is that, one, that I've, I've got this model for myself, which is I look for three things when I'm talking to people, typically, in terms of companies. So people, I think this is important in anything. I want to find people I want to work with, that I feel inspired by, that want to do great work. I want to look at, is there a market opportunity big enough for something to be taken advantage of? And then, can I help? And if those three things don't line up, I don't participate in them. Um, because it's just, life's too short. Uh, I've missed some really interesting opportunities, I will admit. Um, but uh, it's one of those things where I think in the end, every time I've done an investment with someone that I was sure, wasn't sure was the right thing, never turned out right. It took too much work, it was incredibly frustrating, the quality of life went down. So I really focused on those three things. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that it's very invigorating to work with a bunch of really young entrepreneurs that want to change the world, that aren't encumbered by a lot of experience, because, and, and they effectively can change the world, because they don't kind of look at, you can't do it. They kind of go, you can do it. And, and so effectively, you work with a lot of people in that environment, and it's fun. It's a lot of issues and challenges. Company scales, a lot of companies fail. Um, I've been lucky to pick some really good ones. Uh, and a lot of this has come from once you do, one of the things that's really important is understanding your reputation and, and the reputation you want to build going forward. And uh, so I've got, I feel over time that I've built a, a relatively good reputation so people trust me and they want me to help them in certain ways. So, uh, so, my, so when people, when my name comes up or um, get involved in stuff, I get my fair share of opportunities, which has been good. I, I'm actually a little uh, concerned about the state right now of angel investing today because I think it's harder. Not There's a lot of angel investing. There are going to be a lot of opportunities around it. I just think it's harder for angels to make money than it was previously because the terms are getting a little bit more, more onerous. Um, the next, so, so that, that's what I've been doing for the last few years. What did I really learn from that? You know, trying to find the right personal model that works for you, trying to find uh, a way that you can be true to that. Uh, how do you do trade-offs? Like, for example, uh, in order to effectively align myself with my kids, I basically told anyone I'm involved in, if something happened with one of my kids or if there's a, there was a soccer game or whatever I had to go to, I was gone. And I was, I was in a really important board meeting one time, and my daughter or my son needed to be picked up from school because they were sick, and I said, I'm leaving. And like some of these, these some, there's a couple uh, well-known venture capitalists in the room. They said, where are you going? I go, my kid's at the nurse. I've got to go pick them up, take them home. And they go, okay. And they were a little surprised. And I, I said, hey, this is my stick. You know, if you, if you want to find someone else who doesn't have this part of what you're doing. But what they do in the end, they like you for it. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, being upfront and honest about this stuff, you'll, you'll find that people give you more benefit of the doubt. One of the things that I did after that, so, so during all this time, uh, I realized that the world my kids are growing up in is a completely different world than I grew up in. And in order for them to sort of, it's a much more international and dynamic world, and you particularly see this in Silicon Valley, you know, where a ton of the companies in Silicon Valley are started by people not born in this country. 
that come to Silicon Valley to start companies. And a lot of employees are coming in, and, and Silicon Valley is fighting to get green cards for people to get them in. And I realized, man, this world, this dynamic world that I grew up in Southern California, and it's, it's a whole different kind of place. And so my wife and I decided that what we needed to do is how do we teach our kids about the world? And so we, we embarked upon this program where we would go to different places around the world. So my kids, uh, my daughter's 15, my son's now a freshman. They've been to every continent except for two. And we've done some very interesting trips. We did one month, we, and this would be every summer, we'd go for between three and six, sometimes seven weeks. Um, we did China and Mongolia one time, which is actually highly recommend doing sometimes because they're just totally different countries. Uh, and to see them back to back is kind of an amazing thing. The big trip my wife wanted to go on, though, and so in all these trips, what happened was uh, my kids were very athletic. Um, my daughter plays lacrosse and soccer. My son was a very talented lacrosse player. Any, anyone go to Menlo School here, by the way? No Menlo School students? That's where my kids went. Um, there's like a whole bunch of Menlo School students down here. Um, and so my, uh, uh, my kids would always go. We were in, we were in Cusco, Peru, and they, we got them a soccer ball, and they picked up street They took all the kids who sell postcards and stuff. They'd play soccer, pick up soccer games on the street. So we decided when we were going to Africa, we wanted to go uh, and do... Uh, my son and I decided we'd go over early, and we'd go do a sports thing. And so we are going to Kenya. And so we were trying to figure out uh, a program to get involved in to go over there. And it led us down this path of uh, not finding one. We couldn't find a program in Kenya that had something we can go do. Uh, and so I was walking around our neighborhood one day, run into this neighbor of mine, and we're telling him about going to Africa, and we're trying to find the sports program, we're trying to find one in Kenya, and this guy goes, I was just in Nairobi. I, read, I heard, ran into this guy, Salim Mohammed, and Salim Mohammed knows about this. He, he's involved in this program called Carolina for Cabrera, and Carolina Cabrera has a soccer program. You should talk to this guy, Ray Barcott, who's the founder which I'll, I'm going to hopefully show you a video on it. And, and what was interesting was, through s complete serendipity, which I think a lot of the things that happened to me were just like random points where things just sort of aligned themselves in a particular way, I got to meet this guy. So that Rai is the guy I met. And, and so Rai actually sort of captivated in me a lot of stuff that I had, uh, that I had been exposed to during my career. Is like... I like to work with small companies. He effectively started this program. And to give you an idea of context, the program is now 10 years old. Um, it started with, this guy was a junior, I think, at UNC. He then did the Marines, and then he went to Harvard Kennedy School of Government and MBA. And the way he did this was, he's very, a strong social entrepreneur. Like, just like I feel I find small companies or two or three people that help them grow. He found this woman, Tabitha, who had three kids who was HIV positive, wanted to start a clinic. Uh, to get going, and he found this guy, Salim Muhammad, who was in there, who basically had a sports program to deal with tribal, tribal violence. And um, the idea being if you could actually pull together uh, different people from different tribes together and play on a sports team together, that maybe you, the violence would happen. I think the election of, at Kenya where that, all the, the violence took place showed that possibly it's not true, but, uh, but it does help. Um, the other thing is, uh, through this, my son and I went over and helped them in 1997. Uh, with a week, we took over a couple hundred balls. He did the soccer program. He did all this stuff. And subsequently, we went back in 2009, and my son lived in one of the... He lived in the slum for two weeks with a, a family. Uh, and as part of that, it was, this was right before the uh, election. This was after election violence. We were over there. So it's, it's kind of a scary thing for a parent to drop your kid into a slum. Uh, and live for two weeks, but uh, he somehow, I hope he comes out a stronger person. Uh, we'll wait and see. Um, but the idea is, is what Rye did was, it was sort of, a, a, of how to, I was trying to think of like, going back to my idea of people, 
you know, market opportunity, how do you make a difference? It's like, I really liked Rye, I liked Salim, I liked the team they put together. Uh, and so as a result of that, that's probably one of the biggest projects I'm working on now, which I, they have a book coming out, we're doing a book tour, I'm helping Rye with a book tour. Uh, we're trying to help them bring internet connection to the slum and so forth. So now I'm trying to go full circle and come back and say, how do I help and do something somewhere else in the world? And, and I think one of my strengths is I'm not really an incredible product guy. I'm not really an incredibly brilliant um, technologist, right? I think I, am a no, I know how to build leverage. I know how to embrace other people's ideas, help them take those ideas to their total, to their total uh, you know, take advantage of them in the biggest way we possibly can. And so I think from that perspective, the CFK program is one of the, is one of the really exciting things I'm involved with now. And, Hopefully. Now, give, give, also give you an idea. It's the program now has got 2,000 kid boys in the soccer, boys and girls in the soccer program. It's got a program called Binti Pomoja, which is a girls program, which does, uh, if, if anyone's been to Kibera or been to Kenya, you know it's a very male-driven society, and it's a girls' self-help organization. They have a clinic that was started with $26 that that woman, Tabitha, that now serves 45,000 people a year for free. Um, and it's one of the more interesting buildings. So the idea is, this guy did this part-time while he was doing, being a Marine, while he, was doing, uh, while, while he was doing his Harvard work, while he was finishing up. And his idea is you can have a big impact by doing minimal things if you can, in fact, find the right people that you want to team up with to make things happen. Um, so that, um, now I want to talk about 10 or 11 things that I've learned along the way that I hopefully can share with you. So one, stake the biggest opportunity you can and narrow your focus. One of the challenges I always see with uh, startup companies is they go, I want to do this, or I want to do that, they want to do this, and I kind of go, what's the possible biggest opportunity you can do? And, and they kind of go, well, that's too big, Brett. It's like, we can't do this big thing. But I kind of go, if you're here and you think that opportunity exists, scope the big thing and then bring it in. So how do you stake the biggest opportunity, bring your stakes in to figure out what you're going to execute against? It's going to help you do trade-offs as you go forward. Because if you, if, you th if you stake a small opportunity or medium-sized opportunity, but, but the bigger opportunity is something different, and you track to that smaller one, you might find you've missed the window of what's, what's the bigger opportunity. And you might find you can grow through the smaller one so fast that you can really achieve it. So that's a really important thing. Stake your opportunities large and scale them back. Because the, the really good thing that I think a lot of what tech has shown a lot of uh, is that small companies take advantage of big companies because big companies get stuck in the cultural way of thinking about things. Like I said earlier, is they, they let their history get in their way of success because they can't see the opportunities that sit in front of them. Oftentimes people go, why should a company do this? Google will do it. Or Facebook will do it now or whatever. But most of those companies have such big objectives and such big goals that there's huge niches you can go after. Don't assume, I already said this early, find out. I think it's one of the biggest things I see on a regular basis. I mean, I, I just, it's amazing how many people just assume that they know because they think they know what the other person thinks. It's just not possible to do that. Just ask. Um, learn how to find knowledge and data. The thing that the internet does is bring a tremendous amount of data. The trick is, the data, unless you know, you can find the nuggets of knowledge in there, the data is not gonna be something that you effectively can use. I mean, I've seen a lot of flawed decisions based on data. So the trick is, is how do you find the, the knowledge in it? And that's really key. Um, find your core, your story, the things that excite you. I think the challenge in, in working with students who, who are leaving college and going into the workforce, 
a lot of them are all over the place. And, and I wouldn't expect you not to be all over the place to the extent you said you're exploring yourself, you're trying to find who you are, you're trying to find where you're going. But realize on the other end, whoever you're talking to, they want core, committed, focused people who really will make a difference for them comp- their company. And they're talking to a lot of people. In today's world, there's a lot of talent out there. And there's a lot of talent that's actually willing to leave even successful jobs and do startups because they want to do it. So it's a, we're, we're running into a totally, a completely different kind of interesting world. And, uh, and so I think the idea is you've got to find your story, find your core, find those things that really excite you. Is there a company? Is there industry? Is there people? Try to get to those people and get them to help you in whatever way they can help you. I think if you do that, you'll find you can create a lot of success from it. Um, start the learning process early, fail fast. Is that oftentimes people hesitate. You can't hesitate on a lot of stuff. You've got to get in it. Failing is good. I mean, your parents might say that's not true. They're going to sit back and say, why are you doing the startup? It's not going to work. Most startups fail. You know, a lot of really successful entrepreneurs have failed many times. So the thing is, and failing, you want to fail fast because you want to get it over quickly. It's almost like you want to fail fast in a relationship, too, because you don't want to have a relationship that goes on in a year that's not going to go anywhere because you denied your ability to find a partner and you denied the other person the ability to find a partner. It's better to fail fast and move on than is to hold on to stuff forever. Most people hold on. They think they can eke a little more out of it. Sometimes you just can't. You just got to get it over with, move on. Um, lean in. Um, it's very interesting to see how many people will get involved in something they're kind of hesitant. They'll say, yeah, I believe in it, but they hold back a little bit. The trick is, if you, only, you should just lean into these opportunities when you see them and lean in hard. Because you want to capture, there's no, point, there's no point in wasting time and being hesitant and sitting back. It's better to jump in, lean into it, work hard at it, and effectively get what you want out of it so you know as fast as possible what you want to do. When you look at a lot of the really interesting companies, too, they're formed by people like you. They're not formed by people like me. They're formed by people in their 20s. Right? Look at most of the really big successful companies out there today formed by people in their early 20s. So the trick is, is you want to get in there, and they, and, they, and they weren't hesitant about it. They went in and said, we know what it is. I think one of Mark Zuckerberg's big, big traits is he knows the, the four or five key things that drives their success, and he leans hard on making that happen. So when they, have, when they roll out new functionality, and the industry doesn't like it, or their audience doesn't like it, like when feeds came out and everyone says, bring it back, he realized that's core, a core asset that they've got to be big in. Lean in hard, be committed. That's a hard thing to do, but I think it's, it, it, you get, you, it, it's, it's the only way to do it. Delight, love, passion. You want to, if you, the product you're in, involved in, and what you're, I mean, this is actually one of the problems I think that like this company Digga I'm involved in, it didn't delight its users in a, in a big way. And, and as a result, it ran into some issues. So I think the one thing you want to do is the products you're working on, if you're doing tech products or whatever, how do you find those things that really your users really like? And how do you find the passion, your passion, and how do you pull the passion out? A lot of the brand, a lot of what's going on is finding that intangible thing that makes someone says, this is so cool, I want to share it with my friends. Or this is so cool, I'm going to import all my, my Google addresses and send it out to all my friends and I want them to try it. And next thing you know, boom, things take off in a big way. But the trick is you've got to be passionate about it. You've got to make sure your product's passionate about it. You're never, you don't want to be involved in stuff that's going to be treated lightly. Um, this, this guy, I was telling a story earlier in another, another group, um, that there's this guy I know who uses this thing called the love factor. He, he actually has this way of looking at products to see how much people love the product, and he uses that as a measurement for how successful he, he thinks the product will be. He uses this for cartoons. 
But I think that a concept works very well with TechSpace or kind of any kind of company. Uh, leverage your connection in your social graph. I, I think this is the thing that sort of, people are sometimes a little timid to reach out and, and like look at what's going on. A great example today was uh, someone was in, they're probably here, uh, they used, they're meeting someone at some event that they met through Quora. Who would have thought you could meet someone that might be interesting that they're gonna meet an event at Quora? I mean, that's leveraging your social graph or low, leveraging some connections to your social graph. They might not have to be readily connected to you. Oh, by the way, how many people here have LinkedIn profiles? You all should have LinkedIn profiles, by the way. Um, how many have Facebook profiles? How many people have MySpace profiles? Uh, probably everyone does. They're just afraid to admit it. Uh, but you should, I, one of the things I would do is, is, is if you're a senior, create a, my, a, a LinkedIn profile. And the other thing you want to do with your LinkedIn profile is make it alive. Don't make it be, you can go and say, oh, why should I create, this guy told me to create a LinkedIn profile. That's a waste of my time. No, what you want to do is think of all the stuff you've done since you've been here. Professors that might work on a project, students, other students. Have them write little recommendations. So all of a sudden, your LinkedIn profile pops. So if someone decides to look you up, which today, there's a lot of information about you on the internet. Someone decides to look you up, they can look at, oh man, he worked on this science project, or he worked on this, this project at, at, at UC Santa Barbara, and Bill Grant helped him on it. He wrote this thing, you know, one of the most clever guys at knowing C++, uh, and, uh, and I reviewed all his code. Um, you know, you, it might be something that's, that, and someone says, I know Bill Grant, I'll reach out, or I know someone who knows Bill Grant because I'm connected with him, and all of a sudden, stuff starts to happen. You never know how some of these opportunities will occur. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, this company, Oodle, which I'm chairman of, this guy uh, sent me a link, to, uh, he wanted to connect on LinkedIn, so I sent him in the back a note, kind of going, how are you doing? Because I knew his company, I looked at investing in it, but I didn't. Then he goes, oh, things are not going well. It looks like we're going to sell the company. We've got these, these kind of companies. I said, hey, you should go talk to Craig Donato at Oodle. And uh, you know, basically, Oodle bought that company. And so all from a random connection on LinkedIn, and all because actually I took the next step of saying, hey, what are you up to? Right? I was curious enough uh, about what was going on with him and where the status of his business. I also think it's when people connect with me on LinkedIn, there's something up usually. And because uh, it's weird when out of the blue someone decides to connect with you on LinkedIn. Facebook, it's, it's different because it's all these algorithm-based stuff and you have all these people trying to be my friends. I don't know why half of them want to be my friends because I don't know them. Even though I have 1,500 friends on Facebook where I probably only have five real friends in life. <laughs> um, so, and, 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 and I think don't be shy about using your social graph, right? Don't be shy if you think that there's a company you're interested in, a person you think can help you, reach out and kind of be persistent, but, but you can only do that if you really have an idea of what your story is. Because you can't go meet, you, you don't want to go meet with someone, you don't have someone to make a connection for someone for you, and you go there and you either, one, you don't follow up on it. So my son's famous, like he wants to meet someone, I, I connect him, sits in his email, sits in an email for a week, two weeks, three weeks, like I don't connect him with those people anymore, right? Because he doesn't believe, my, well my son is a generation that doesn't believe email is important, right? Text, Facebook notes are great. I go, Kyle, Reed Hoppin's not going to send you a note on Facebook. Um, so the idea is, is, is when you also get these connections, really follow up. You can't be flaky. Um, be more open than closed. I actually think that most, well, I'm going to combine this with the last point, which is most people want you to win. 
is I think most people want you to win. And so in order to win, you, you want to you pull as many people in your gravitational pull of your idea or your career or possible. You want people vested into going, I want this person to be successful. When they see opportunities and someone says, I need someone to do this, you want them to go, how do they think of you? Or how do they think of, you know, what are the, how do you put, get them involved in that gravitational pull? And to do that, I think you really got to be more open about stuff. This is a hard thing to do. I think a lot of people, there's, sometimes it's, I think it's a, it might be a lack of confidence, it might be a fear of failure, it might be a lot of things like, why should I tell someone? They might think this is a really stupid idea. Most likely it is a stupid idea. But there's nothing wrong with having stupid ideas because at least you can go, well, that one's bad, I'll go on to something else, right? The trick is, is it's better to put it out there and better to expose it than it is to hold it tight and then linger on it. Uh, and, and then also let, let those things go that are just not going to be that successful. So, so the other thing is change is a constant. And I think change is going to become more of a constant. Um, I think it was, it was, I think change that, that whatever companies you're doing, the great thing about change is it creates tremendous opportunity. And you know, you look at like, for example, all of the impact the, the, the really interesting impact that social media is having in the world of politics these days. All the way from a congressman exposing himself on Craigslist, not exposing himself, but flashing whatever it is, to I mean, who would have thought a congressman in the United States would try to pick up someone on Craigslist and then send a picture of him, and then eventually you know, have to resign. I mean, it's, that's, it's kind of mind-boggling, but it happened, right? Who would have thought all this stuff was happening in Egypt or Tunisia or the stuff all through random connections of empowering different kind of people who got passionate about a cause and leveraged the technology. And then also all the people who decide, I support that cause in such a big way, I'm going to help build all these technology workarounds to help people do what they do. Whether you're in China or what Google did with Say Now and helping people tweet through the voice connection stuff. It's like there's all these ways you can do that. So, so the, tr the, the trick is you want to be a lot more open than closed and just realize this change, as, as, when change comes, change is more of an opportunity than it's a problem, and you want to embrace it, and you want to lean into it, and you don't want to say, oh my God, we're screwed, or this is a problem. It's like when that happens, it's going to be more of an opportunity, and from opportunity, it's going to build character, and either from the character part, you're going to find you're going to build a way to, to build more opportunity from it. And I think the other part that it does, it puts you in the zone where you're thinking about things in a very critical way, and, and so I'll bring this full circle back to, uh, to this idea that, that the, problem, the problem that you have with careers is you get structured in a certain way of thinking, and schools teach you a structured way of thinking, that oftentimes when I hire people or I get involved with people, it's not because they have a certain amount of experience. It's they've done certain things and thought about things in certain ways and resolved them in certain ways. I, will, I like the way they've thought about the problem. It's the way they're clever in approach to a problem. To me, that's more important. I hired this woman at Excite one time who basically was 5'2 and was on the Stanford women's basketball team, which is kind of odd. Uh, and second of all, she worked for Mother Teresa. And then she came back and got an MBA at Stanford. And so in all my conversations with her, I love the way she talked about this problem that she helped uh, Mother Teresa deal with in, in the slums of India about how they had to solve this problem. And she brought this new, different kind of way of thinking about it, which solved their problem in a much different kind of way. And so I kind of liked that, and so we hired her. Uh, and so the trick is, I, on the other hand, there's another woman she wanted to hire, who I, I, I told her I wouldn't bring this example up, but I'm going to bring it up anyways. This woman, basically, we offered her a job. She goes, i got to talk to my parents. So she's 28. Her parents are in Russia. They're gone for two and a half weeks. 
We gave her an exploding offer, and we said, uh, take the job or not. She came back and said, I got to talk to my parents. We, resolved, we, we, we rescinded the offer. We eventually hired her uh, because uh, everyone ganged up against me and said, look, we really want to hire her. But we, we made her have a lot of angst that we didn't hire her for like four to six weeks after that. But the, but, but the idea is that I think what you really are, it's all about is how do, you, how do you build in your your story, how do you build your collective experiences so you effectively are clever enough to take advantage of these opportunities as they come up in your life. And I think from my perspective, I've been lucky. Uh, and I think things are simpler uh, and I've taken advantage of some good opportunities and that's what's happened. So on that note, I'm going to make one last thing and I'll just say uh, the hardest challenge that I've dealt with, it's the hardest thing I've done so far, is being a parent. And that's a longer story, but uh, when you all become parents, uh, and appreciate your parents, because I think the, the one thing I lesson I'll say I've learned about being a parent myself is that um, the lens you have as a parent is the lens that I grew up in. You'll, you'll have the same kind of, you have the lens you grew up in. The, the, and, the, and the way you raise your kids is a completely different thing. And the problem is, is I look at my kids, and I look at opportunities they have, and I kind of go, holy, why wouldn't they want to take advantage of this stuff, right? So it's, it's a kind of amazingly give and take, give and flow, but I tell you, it is challenging because you, you love these things so much and you want them to be so successful, but they got to find their way, and sometimes parents get a little twisted. And most of the problems parents have with their kids have nothing to do with the kids. It has almost everything to do with the parent which I'm willing to admit that it's more my problem than it is my kid's problem than any stretch. So on that note, questions. <laughs> sorry, sorry if I rambled too much. You know, when I first told my friends I was going to do it, they said, my friends goes, Brett, the first 15 minutes is going to be totally useless and you're going to ramble a lot and you're not going to make any sense. The second 15 minutes, you're going to sort of get your act together. In the third 15 minutes, everyone will forget what you said in the first 15 minutes. I'm not sure that happened, but any questions anyone has? Everyone wants to eat. What's your fondest memory at UCSB? My fondest memory at UCSB? You know, I loved, I loved walking around the lake, actually. That was, I'll, I'll always remember, there used to be these big birds that lived in the, in the eucalyptus trees there. I'm not sure they're still there. But I always loved that. That was like my escape, I think. I would just sort of like... Uh, but but you know, the, my hard part was that I, it was, I was working so much, you know, like, uh, and I worked, my job was in Southern California. I didn't work when I was up here, but I worked every break. So I really was always sort of on the go. So I, I don't think I enjoyed my college experience as much as I should have. Um, but I think the, 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 the basically walk around the lake and the beach areas here are really, it's, beautiful, it's a beautiful campus. And coming down, you realize, I mean, this is like lucky you guys are going to, when you go back and you start working, you go back to the place, you're going to go, oh my gosh, I was lucky enough to be here for four years or two years or whatever, however long you're here for. That's it? Oh, we have over here. How did you uh, get involved with Dig? What stage did you get involved with? I got involved with Dig. How, how long? Uh, what, I got involved with Dig. Oh, uh, how did I get involved with? Uh, how did you get? How did you get involved with Dig, or at what stage did you uh, invest in it? I got involved in Dig uh, probably in the second year. Uh, the company was funded, uh, was founded, and uh, so I've been on the board for I think it's like four years old now, five years old, um, and uh, I've been on the board for three years. So I've been very active in the company. 
since uh, May of uh, May June of uh, last year, um, as we've gone through a lot of challenges the company's had. I mean, that, 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 there's some really interesting lessons in Dig. Like, I think the big issue with Dig, from my perspective, is um, it sort of never really built uh, a product that people loved to use. It had at a point in time, it was this innovative way to find interesting things, but it didn't lock those users down into a passionate habit. It, ha it has a small number of users that are passionate habit. Uh, and it got too addicted to SEO traffic from Google. So when Google changed their algorithm in the first quarter of last year, uh, they lost about half of their traffic. That, most of their traffic losses happened in the first quarter of last year. And they lost that because of Google moved closer to the source of the content. And Google, and, and definitely Dig is, is more of a, it re refers to a lot of the content. But Dig is very interesting. Kevin Rose is a really amazing guy. The team has been strong. Jay Adelson, the previous CEO, is a great guy. So um, I just think strategically we just made some mistakes there that I think we're, we can, we're going to try to course correct from. We'll wait and see. Right now, the company's doing, doing pretty well. Uh, what's the biggest investment opportunity you've passed on? Golly. I have to think about that one. Um, there's a, there's a few I missed. Um, the, there's a really big one. I can't think of what it is. I missed it because I, I was going to invest, and I went on one of these long trips, and the, the deal closed while I was gone, and, and, and I didn't get a chance to invest in it. Uh, but I don't, have any, I don't have any regrets about that, actually. Um, you know, that I think the... Um, there's, I, I would probably say there's three deals that I missed that probably were probably relatively good-sized deals because of other things I was doing, or um, people, that I really wasn't positive that I wanted. I'm actually a different kind of investor. I don't, when I invest, I don't like to write checks and walk away. I get involved. Like, if you, if you probably talk to most of the companies I'm involved in, they probably wish I'd go away. But, um, the, uh, you know, I'm involved in a lot of them in a, in a really deep way. I mean, Craig Donato Udall would probably say, there's times when you want me to go away, and there's a lot of times when he says, like, I knock him in the side of the head in, in a fresh enough way that gets some common sense into the business. But it's a, it's a different one. But, uh, but you, you just can't have any regrets. You've got to move on uh, and try to find the next stuff that you want to do. I, I think now it's just a challenging time to get a return. I, I think most angels, a lot, I think most angels who make, it's an average of all angels will probably lose money. There'll be a few that will, there'll be, there'll be like maybe 30, 40% that do well, but it's going to be tough. Um, could you talk about maybe some mentors that have helped you guide yourself through life and make good decisions? Oh, my neighbor, Pat McElroy. This guy grew up with me. Uh, he's, a fire, he's in the fire department at Santa Barbara. So, um, who, uh, so I would say different points of time, different people. Um, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from Vinod Kosala. He was in the board of Excite, brilliant guy. Um, he's sometimes challenging to deal with. Uh, but, you know, uh, um, he was great. There was a guy at a hardware company. This probably the first guy, my second job, really, who uh, sort of took me under his wing and provided a lot of guidance and perspective and advice. And, and I was, I, I mean, I would have been, I was a sloppy. I was sloppy, you know. I would, I would go around and make wrong jokes at the wrong time, and I would do embarrassing stuff, and, um, and but most of it I got myself out of. But he was the one who sort of tightened me up a little bit and said, hey, you know, you just can't be this, this sloppy at stuff. But that was good. Uh, and he gave me a huge opportunity, too. He took a big risk on me. Uh, to help set up a bunch of, uh, I set up a bunch of uh, Eastern sales. I was like, really, this is before um, 
this is the company I resigned from to go traveling, but he wasn't there at the at point in time. But uh, he basically asked me to set up all their East Coast sales offices. So I moved over. I was like 29. I did all this stuff. It was really kind of an amazing experience. I lived in Boston for a couple of years. But I would say that. Brett Willington, thanks for joining us. Technology Management Program. Thanks. Thanks.